As I was thinking about our, our passage this morning, I was asking myself how many of us have at some point in our lives been victims of lip service throughout the years, whether it's our own children, yes, dad, or yes, momming us with no intention to actually listen to what we have to say, or our politicians making big promises as an election comes up only for those promises to turn out empty, or companies that promise their lifetime guarantee on their product and then you go to return it for some defect and you find that it's not quite as lifelong as you'd hoped it was. And all of us have been there one way or another and we can relate with how frustrating that can be. But I can think of no one that has been the victim of more lip service promises than our God has. We are terrible for turning to God in our distress or in any difficulty, and then we bring our promises, our vows, our, yeah, these things before God saying, if, if God, you will just get us out of this mess, then I will fill in the blank here. And we turn to God in the midst of our distress, and then when things are good, so easily we turn from him. This is so clear that it is essentially the history of Israel in the Old Testament in a nutshell. Turn to God, call out to God, God saves them, faithfulness, and then a waning of faith and a turning from faith when things are good. It shows God's incredible grace and patience with humanity that he continues to care for his people even though we so often fall short on our promises to him. And Jonah very easily could have been the same. At the end of his psalm in chapter 2, he ends with, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The next thing that happens And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And in this moment, Jonah has a choice. Does he hit the ground running, trying again to escape God's call, or does he actually follow through with action the promises he's made, the words that he has uttered in his distress? And Jonah's response, and Nineveh's response to Jonah is at the center of our passage this morning. I'd ask that you'd come with me to Jonah chapter 3. And we'll be looking at all of chapter 3. So Jonah has vomited out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Such an incredible response. And one of the first things that we should notice as we read this, if we've been spending time in Jonah and becoming familiar with it, is the crystal clear reversal of response from Jonah 1. Jonah 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee. Our second call, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Same wording. The second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. From rising to flee to rising to go. And all it took in the meantime was a calamitous storm near death, a few nights in the belly of a fish, and being unceremoniously vomited on a beach. But go he did. And I can't help but wonder how often my heart has been in a similar place. Warned and admonished and corrected by God to the nth degree before finally relenting and seeing my own errors. But anyways, Jonah heads to this dreaded Assyrian capital of Nineveh, armed with only God's word against Nineveh. Remember that these Warlike Assyrians were not on particularly good terms with the Israelites, and they were not, to Jonah's mind, likely going to be very impressed with the message that he had to bring. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Think of it. You're a warlike people, proud of your military prowess. You're proud of your citadels and your cities, and this Man comes to you with a word from a God you do not recognize, and he comes from a nation that you have harassed for years, and says, and yet 40 days and your city will be overthrown. Jonah proclaims this news to the people in this incredibly important metropolis, and he says that the Lord is going to bring this destruction upon them. And the immediate assumption is that he might be tarred and feathered or stoned in the streets by the, by the people. But what happens? The people believed God. I think often when we have this idea of sharing the gospel in our current context, in a world that is hostile to the gospel, we can have this apprehension about 
what's going to happen, what's going to come, how are they going to react. And we come up with all of these doomsday scenarios, and yet even the Ninevites believed God. This nation had no good reason to believe, and yet they believed. So I was doing some research on this. There are some interesting pieces of the puzzle Jonah visited Nineveh during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Somewhere, that reign was somewhere in the neighborhood of 780 to 750 B.C. And within that reign, on June 15th, 763 B.C., in the skies over Assyria, there had been a total solar eclipse. Something that, to the people of the ancient world, was a sign that a god or some god or the god was at work and likely not overly pleased. Assyria also during this time was in the midst of a great famine. Also during this time, and this both the famine and the eclipse and also this major earthquake that happens, all of them are verifiable today by our scientific methods. They can find these things referenced. And this major earthquake was mentioned in the prophet, prophetic books of Zechariah and Amos. Zechariah 14.5 says, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah, the king of Judah. And the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. As the king of Judah, King Uzziah was a contemporary to King Jeroboam II. And like I said, the earthquake, the eclipse, the famine, they're all corroborated by scientific evidence and dated to approximately the same time that Jonah was showing up in Nineveh, about to deliver this fateful message. I hope you remember what we talked about last week, the amazing sovereignty of God in something so small as on a North American Canadian Thanksgiving Sunday, this small church in the middle of nowhere in Canada happens to be preaching on Jonah's message of Thanksgiving, God orchestrating these small things and these mercies for us and for his glory. Even from our earlier passages, God orchestrates that the lots that are cast by the sailors would identify Jonah as the culprit. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And along these lines, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul said, God is not blind, neither is he capricious. For him there are no accidents. With God there are no cases of chance events. Jonah arrives in Nineveh and proclaims, and yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And by his reckoning, it would have seemed that he arrived at a particularly receptive time just by chance. He had no control over the natural environment around him. But just like God's sovereignty over the storm that resulted in Jonah's swim and his consequent change of heart, Nineveh had one way or another, whether it was by the earthquake or the eclipse or the famine or 
and the other combination of these things, God had worked by these means and had somehow rendered these people that had no good reason to believe what Jonah had to say and had rendered them utterly powerless to combat it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people believed God. So why do I mention this? I'd said earlier in this series that God's role in what we would call chance or luck is a sermon on its own, and this is not that sermon. The focus of our passage today is not even specifically on God's sovereignty over man's choice or seemingly chance circumstances. Today's passage keys in on one particular facet of life in God's world, responding to God in faith. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most explicit passages in scriptures that show us what it means to respond to God in faith. Starting in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has granted to his people saving faith. And God has also granted to his people good works that he has prepared beforehand that we need to be doing. Whether it's Jonah, after his whole ordeal with the boat and the storm and the whale, responding in faith, or Nineveh, that great and wicked city, believing God, both of those things are at their root a gift of God. Neither Jonah and his faithful round two trip to Nineveh, or Nineveh and their faith have anything to boast of, for this in itself is a gift of God. And mankind has long been guilty of appropriating the glory due to God in situations like this. But neither Jonah nor Nineveh could have responded as they did without God's intervention. Outside of God's sovereign will, they were lost, and God has made these things come to pass. It's a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around that God has orchestrated these events and these decisions of mankind. And these things came to pass at the hands of men who, by God's orchestration, were faithful to God's commands. Think earlier in the book of Jonah, the sailors on the ship, they responded to the Lord in fear and reverence, even to the point of being willing to throw what to their mind was a paying passenger on their ship into the ocean. Jonah once returned to the earth. He 
faithfully went to Nineveh and preached the word which humbled an entire nation before God. What I'm playing at here is that the total sovereignty of God and the agency and responsibility of mankind are both at work in our passage today and both at work in our own hearts and our own lives. God is totally sovereign. And God also has deemed that we as mankind, we as his people, are required to act in a certain way and we are responsible to act in that way. So Jonah calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Both individually and corporately, the people of Nineveh responded with what we could very easily call the fear of the Lord. We talked earlier in Jonah about this fear of the Lord and that it is more than just a healthy respect. There was a legitimate fear of the Lord, a fear of the kind and quality that stems from worship, worship of the true God in his greatness. And the people of Nineveh in this moment were just learning of this God and who he was, and yet they recognized right from square one that this was not a God to be trifled with and that he was worthy of such repentance and worship as they offered him. Last line in Jonah's psalm, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That was a direct and an indirect indictment, directly indicting those idol-worshiping pagan sailors and indirectly indicting the faithless Israelites for turning from God and worshiping their own idols. And this was a recurring theme throughout our book, and here it's comes down to these pagan Ninevites. No longer are these some nameless pagan sailors. They worship some god out there. Now it is an identifiable rank pagan who themselves were even Israel's enemies. They were directly opposed to God's people, and yet these pagans are not used in the way that this book's audience would have been familiar with. The Ninevites were not a cautionary tale or a boogeyman or a picture of ungodliness. Of all things, the Ninevites become an example of faith. And this would have absolutely not been lost on the original audience. This would absolutely have raised the hackles of every one of this book's Israelite readers. If you doubt this, have a look at how Jesus used this story some 800 years later in Luke 11. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As far as the Israelites were concerned, Nineveh was beyond saving. These were the enemies of God's people. They did not deserve what God brought. And yet God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's from 1 Corinthians 1. And Nineveh's faithfulness was used by God to shame the faithlessness of his own people. It's important, too, that it wasn't just the individuals in Nineveh, a scattering of people throughout the city that were shown to be faithful. In verse 6 and following of our passage, the word reached the king of the Ninevites, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. The king of a city, of a nation, was the linchpin for that entire people. He was their representative, and he was their leader. We see instances like this throughout Scripture, whether you think of Darius responding after Daniel comes out of the lion's den. He says, in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear the Lord, the God of Daniel. Or King Hazarus' proclamation that the Jews are now allowed to defend themselves against any who would attack them after the faithfulness of Queen Esther and Mordecai. And here the king of Nineveh descends from his throne. A major sign here. He comes down to be among his people and to mourn among his people. To put on sackcloth and ashes was to be in utter mourning, in utter distress. This is what a person would do when they lose a dear loved one. He mourns among the people. And if you're wondering what that might look like, imagine what it would be for a person to try and stand and protest this repentance, this word brought by this foreign prophet when your own king is down and worshiping this God. And don't miss that final line of the king's proclamation. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Perhaps the Ninevites recognize something that we sometimes ignore. Faithfulness to God does not earn us anything from God. God is good. God is just. But God is not a vending machine. Insert faithfulness. Insert prayers. Insert 
offerings in the church plates and receive blessings. The king here is resigned to the fact that it may even be too late to save Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He goes, well, maybe, maybe we will be overthrown. And yet still, I will worship this God. I will get down and fast and pray, and maybe, just maybe, God will relent and not destroy us. And at first, we wonder if God is going to, if we're reading this. I'm thinking from the, from the perspective of the king, he's just, maybe God will, maybe God won't. But that is exactly what God did, does. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And passages like these can sometimes really seem to put humanity in the driver's seat, essentially allowing mankind by their action or their inaction to control God's response. But know that our God will always be the driving force and not the responding reaction. Our God is not waiting to see which way the pendulum is going to swing before he acts. I would struggle to worship a God who I could control so easily. It might not be control in the sense that I get to tell God what to do and he'll do it. But it's not far from it. If God is just simply reacting to my actions... God looks and says, well, Josh did this, so now I'm going to do that. That seems to me to be utterly ungodly. And it is. Our God is not reactive. He is sovereign and beyond our ability to control in this way. Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 comes to mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or even the simplicity of Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I quoted Dr. Sproul earlier that with God there's no chance, no accidents. And in this response to the Ninevites, God is not relenting from a disaster that he had already sovereignly determined was going to happen. God warns the people of Nineveh by his prophet, and by God's grace they repent, avoiding disaster. All of this was at the will of the Lord who ordained the preacher. He ordained the circumstances in which the preacher preached. Whether you include the natural events surrounding Jonah's time in Nineveh, God ordained the repentance that saved the Ninevites. We rely on God for so much more than we realize, 
Even our own repentance, even our own faith comes from him. And yet he works through our action to accomplish the means by which we come to faith. When I was thinking about a title for this message, what came to mind for me was a faithful response. Where Jonah responded in faith to the Lord. And the Ninevites responded in faith to the Lord at Jonah's preaching. And all of this was a gift of God. And that doesn't make us mindless robots programmed either for salvation or destruction. It makes us like children, God's children, dependent on our Heavenly Father to meet our needs to His glory. Again, today's passage keys in on that particular aspect of a life of faith in God's world that we must respond to him in faith. We are required to respond to him in faith. We know that God is sovereign and that he ordains both the means and the ends of our lives, but all the while we are still held responsible, still required to persevere in the faith unto the end to steal from our time in Hebrews. We start to bring these things to a close. I want to make something absolutely explicit this morning. It doesn't matter who you are. The Israelite prophet, a sailor, a Ninevite, an Israelite, a church kid, a drug addict, conservative, liberal, NDP, Green Party, it doesn't matter what label or caste or group of mankind you come from. We all stand in desperate need of God's work in our hearts. We cannot do these things alone. God brings about our regeneration, our faith, our repentance, our justification, our sanctification. And in his will, he'll bring about our glorification. God does these things, and yet God requires of us to work at these things. And these Ninevites provide such a great example for us that no matter where we find ourselves, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. If there was a nation that was beyond the reach of God's grace, it was Nineveh. God can save such a wicked city as Nineveh. God used such a reluctant prophet as Jonah then God can save and use a wicked and reluctant person like myself. God can take a hold of us as his people and use us in spite of our failings and our weaknesses. And even in our failings and our weaknesses, God is proven to be strong. God shows his glory in using the weakest and the worst of people all over the place throughout Scripture. Think of the failings of Jonah and David and Solomon, all of these men that are held up as pinnacles of the faith, and yet God takes them and uses them for his glory and for their own good. 
by the working of his Holy Spirit, God can remove even the stoniest of hearts and replace it with a heart of flesh that acknowledges him as Lord. So even at our very most rock bottom, we can cast ourselves before the Lord, even as the king of Nineveh did, and say, maybe God will turn and save us. Turn and save me by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I am unrighteousness. I am in myself unrighteousness. I am wicked. I am far from God. Maybe God will apply his son, Jesus' righteousness to me. I am deserving of every ounce of wrath that God can pour out upon me, but maybe God will save me by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe that wrath was poured out for me. And if you wonder if that wrath was poured out upon Jesus for your sake, if you believe that to be true, look in here and you will see time and time and time again where God takes imperfect, unrighteous, unholy people and saves them by work of his grace saves them by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Even Paul going around murdering Christians, and God shows up and knocks him right off his horse and says, you follow me now. And for us as believers, if we have placed our faith in Christ, then God has done that work in our own hearts. But we also need to recognize that God can do this for even the stoniest and most hardened of unbelievers in our lives. We cannot, in good conscience, write anyone off. We'll get to this idea later that Jonah is upset about God's work here in the people of Nineveh and is Mad because he knew that God could save them, and that's why he didn't want to go in the first place. So think of the people in your own lives that maybe mentally you might have written off as being beyond saving. Jonah had written Nineveh as being beyond God's saving, and yet God said, go to Nineveh and I'll show you what I can do. Think of these tiny little words that Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is not a big hour-long hellfire and brimstone revival meeting that he gets them all hyped up. Jonah goes, yet 40 days and you shall be overthrown. And what happens? The people believed God. The people to a one said, okay, stop what we're doing right now. Everyone fast. Everyone pray. Everyone, get down on your knees, turn from your wickedness, repent, and maybe God will save us. And we are told in scriptures that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, not that we might be saved, we have a greater hope than Nineveh here. Nineveh says, maybe, maybe God will just save us if we do what we're told. But if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. 
if we truly believe we have a far greater hope than Nineveh ever did. And that hope is grounded in the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is good news. And that is good news to the most impenitent person we could imagine in our lives. Think of the most hardened sinner you know. That is still good news to them, and they need to hear it. So share that good news with them. Fulfill that great commission that we were given. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So let's carry that commission out. Share the truth with even the unlikeliest of converts. For we never know what God has been doing in a person's life to prepare their hearts for the application of the gospel. We don't know if God has a faithful response in mind for that person. And in whatever we do, let us remain faithful to the one who has granted us faith in the first place. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we cannot even begin to imagine why you would save people like us. We cannot even begin to imagine why you would save Nineveh, even though they were enemies of your people. Heavenly Father, we were your enemies, and yet you saved us. And you have done so for your glory and for our good. And not because we deserve it, but because you have chosen to do so. And Lord, for that we are eternally grateful, for we could not earn it. We could not pull that from you by our own action. Lord, you have done these things, and for that we give you glory. And God, we ask forgiveness, each one of us, for the times where we have taken our own salvation for granted. We also ask forgiveness for the time where we have held back on sharing your truth for maybe this person doesn't seem like they would be interested. God, give us courage to share your gospel with every single person that we get the opportunity to do so with. Give us the courage to share the gospel even when it is hard, even when it might cost us, even when it is totally against everything that our own intuition and intellect is saying is a good or safe or right idea. For we are not to lean on our own understanding, but we are to acknowledge you in everything. And we are to go and make disciples. We are to teach the world what it looks like to observe all that you have commanded us in your word. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you've given us your word and the example of Nineveh and how you can save a per people so far away as them. And Lord, if there are any among us or any who are meeting with us online who do not yet know you, who feel like they are too far away, who feel like they do not deserve 
your salvation, who feel like they do not deserve your truth, who feel like they are beyond the reach of your grace, help them to see that they are not. Help them to see that even these wicked people were not so far outside of your work that you could not save them. And Lord, help them to see and know by your Holy Spirit and to confess that you are Lord and believe in their hearts that you raised Jesus from the dead. God, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for each one who is here and who is joining us online. And we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would apply this word to our hearts and to our lives that we might live as ones who have been saved by grace through faith as a gift from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.